Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast taking you along the meandering mountain stream of heritage. I'm Annie. And I'm Jenny. And do you know where the cool mountain stream of heritage ends, Annie? In the sea. It all goes back to the sea, Jenny. Yes, that's technically true and I hadn't thought of that, but only after it's been in the loch of the British Podcast Award nominations. Yay! (laughs) That's right, we've been nominated for the Smartest Podcast Award. Yes, I squealed like an overprotective oyster catcher when I found out. Oh, is that what that noise was? (laughs) Thank you so much to everyone who downloads and listens to our episodes. Yes, that's you listening right now. Thank you for all the ratings and reviews and support on Patreon. It means that we get noticed for these kind of awards. As a small independent podcast, it means so much to us that we are up there with some of the best podcasts in the UK. It's amazing. It's so great. And uh, as we are in the smartest podcast category, um, we are going to have a particularly smart episode for you all this week. So everyone get your learning caps on, there will be a test at the end. Yes, we're going to be looking at how an ancient Irish legend can help give us a different perspective on an important foundation principle of Highland clan culture. That is, duchus. Ah yes, duchus. Back we go to the Highland clans. But what is duchess, Annie? Do we do we keep it under our kilts or hidden in our sporins or stuffed in the stomach of a sheep? Whoa, 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 Jenny. It means a few things, but absolutely none of what you've just said. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off by just giving ourselves a brief refresher on the structure of Highland clans. Okay, so clan structure is a sophisticated society. We have an overarching principle of kinship, They're formed not just out of blood relatives and family, but out of a much wider geographical and political group. In charge of the clan we have the chief, and their immediate relatives form the ruling class of the clan, their gentry. They probably have the most brightly coloured plaids, the finest whiskey, an origin story from one of the ancient mythological heroes, and six thoroughbred kelpies in the stables. No, 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 no. That's all six feet, Jenny. Perfect. And although the clan is run by this family, it's also a kinship. It's many different people from lots of different families coming together to follow the chief. There's many reasons people might find themselves pledging allegiance to a clan chief, and the clan is open and flexible to this. In order to grow, the clan has to be inclusive. There's safety and power in bigger numbers. This community of people live off the resources of the land, and it's up to the chief to divide these between this big, flexible community. It's a very paternal relationship. At the root of this is the clan's collective territory, the land and maritime areas that provide food and shelter to the people. The more good quality land the clan controls, the more people they can support, and the more bodies they have for protection in times of feuds and battles. The chief also wields the clan's political influence, shaped by the collective power of the people who follow him. The chief has a responsibility to look after the clan, and this means in a kindly and fair management of all the resources the land has to offer. Imagine the land is a cake at the chief's birthday party. He gets a lot of power over this cake. 
but the social contract means that everyone at the party has to get a slice. The cake belongs to the party, not the chief. It doesn't matter who brought the cake or who's related to the demigods of Ireland, as soon as the cake is at the party, the cultural code means it belongs to everyone. And the chief knows that he has to ensure he's cutting up the cake fairly, and that there is, after everything, a slice for all. His 80-year-old neighbour definitely needs a piece of cake, even if she can't fight in battles and only has one sad goat called William. She... (laughs) William gets some cake too. (laughs) But she is at the party, and so she gets a piece of the cake. And you know, she probably deserves a bit with one of the extravagant decorations made of chocolate fudge icing, because over the span of her life, she will have given so much to the clan. And the key to all this is the cake, which in this case is the land itself. Kinship is inextricably tied to the land. And this brings us to Duchess. So Duchess is this concept of a traditional connection between people and land, a collective right. So we have Duchess in the Highlands and Islands from the medieval period and into the early modern period. And it's the custom that divides up the land between the different families of a clan. It's also giving families the right to be inheriting the land that their ancestors were on. You may have no written deed of occupation, but it's believed that if you've had three generations on one piece of land, then that's your inheritance, your The three generations is a bit of a loose guideline here because there are different timescales and different rights depending on the century and the clan. For any native Gaelic speakers out there, we aren't simply mispronouncing duolichus, which is the Gaelic word for heritage. I mean, I might be mispronouncing that one. (laughs) I was speaking to one of my Gaelic teachers about this and... And we had this misunderstanding, and I realised that because Duchess is a medieval concept, it's definitely not modern parlance anymore. So (laughs) it's not something that you can just expect everyone to know. But this word, Duchess, also has some literal meanings too. It can describe a place of birth, uh, a birth tie, or an inheritance, or a customary practice. But from the perspective of land rights, it's describing a hereditary right of occupation. So a family that is settled on a piece of land has a duchess to it, an inheritance. And if we go back to your analogy with the clan chief and the birthday cake, then it becomes a completely different story when instead of giving everyone a slice, the cake is cut up but people have to rent their piece of cake and they no longer get to eat it and it always reverts back to the clan chief. But we'll come back to this when we talk about the clearances in future episodes. One of the vulnerabilities of Duchess when it's centred on the community and on this fair distribution and inheritance of land is that it's a custom of the Gaels, of the Gaelic people and not a law of the Scots, though these are muddy waters when we're trying to divide them up. I don't know, I think I quite like the muddy waters. I prefer the rule of custom to the rule of law. You know, I mean, it's customary, 
for me to have my scrambled eggs on toast every Sunday morning and I believe this should be my hereditary right. Weirdly, Jenny, I think I actually agree with you, but maybe not on your scrambled eggs example. (laughs) We have a system that's based in customary rights and that's not enshrined in written law, so it's vulnerable, especially when folks who only value specific types of written laws get more and more power. Mm. But to be honest... I think Duchess should be seen as a law. It's just an oral law that is under, <laughs> actually understood by people as opposed <laughs> to a written law that is only understood by a select few. No, that's a good point, Annie. I think my scrambled egg ritual should be written into law ASAP for the protection of my Sunday morning joy. Can't have anybody poaching on my scrambled eggs. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and start writing that scrambled egg law yet, Jenny. <laughs> let's first have a look into the concept of duchess. I was like, why did I write poaching on my scrambled eggs? And I was like, oh, I spent ages thinking of that pun. <laughs> <laughs> right, duchess, here we come. So right at the soul of duchess. We just have people living on land that their ancestors lived on. As easy as that. The hereditary right to your granny's turnip patch. And by hereditary, you mean the right of the land to be passed down from generation to generation through the same family, right? Yes. Okay. But Duchess is kind of more than this, isn't it? Because of the right that it enshrines, Gallic communities are truly rooted their land becomes more than just an inherited wealth from the point of view that it's it's a good place to grow barley, but it also becomes a cultural and moral inheritance. And through the generations of life that live upon it, the land starts developing new layers of meaning. Yes, but like so much of the culture of the medieval Gales, Duchess feels so easy to over-romanticise. Ah, yes, I often romanticise the medieval times and the plague. I mean, pop a kilt on that plague, Jenny, and give it a set of bagpipes and it'll get its own time-travelling romance. (laughs) Yeah, they'll call it the kiss of black death. (laughs) Plague heart. (laughs) It may take our lives, but it'll never take our goat, William. William may be a sad goat, but he's really survived through it all. He's seen it all. He's a old goat by now, Jenny. Mm-hmm. So in the <laughs> early medieval times, Duchess is a bit simpler. A system of collective land rights based on kinship, divided up for the benefits of the community. But then as time moves on, we get a kind of semi-feudal aspect to it. Ah, and the feudal system is when landowners provide land to tenants in exchange for a cut of their crops, their loyalty, and their able-bodied men in times of war. Yes, in exchange for having hereditary rights to the land, clan members were expected to protect the clan territory through military service and allegiance. However, it's not a completely feudal system, because the heart of Duchess is still beating below this. There's not an owner of the land because the land is for all of the clan. This is because Duchess isn't just about individuals and their barley. It's about the rights of the clan, of the full community to the land. 
and with this land comes the language and the culture. Duchis is a very emotional word and it's very hard to translate. That's why we're spending half an hour trying. (laughs) (laughs) You're born to the land. Your culture is born of the land. Your livelihood will be provided by the land. Your family and community are tied together through the land. This is all connected through heritage and language. And that's the inheritance of the Gaels. And in our research for this episode, we've just discovered more and more layers of duchess. And I feel like we can only scratch the surface in one episode. Yes, I believe that we're just one sheaf of barley in the field. Well, one of my favourite bits of barley is that the clans express their rights of power through their origin stories. I, I love this too. So these are often stories that connect the clan chief to a king or a demigod. And they help establish a sense of collective identity within the clan. And to reassert the claim of the chief and therefore the collective rights to the area. And they are really important to people because they are one way that folks cultivate a sense of belonging. You are part of a clan that has an ancient tie to a place that descends from royal or even legendary heroes. So a really curious one of these is Diarmid Udunya, one of the legendary figures associated with Clan Campbell. Diarmid comes from Irish mythology, which would have come to Scotland as oral tradition. However, many of the old creation stories of Ireland are also in manuscript form, and these manuscripts are phenomenal. They were first written in the 11th and 12th centuries, which (sighs) really excites me until I look them up online to see the digitised manuscripts, and I remember that 800-year-old parchments are really hard to read. I really enjoyed medieval paleography in archive school, but I... I'm a little bit rusty. Are they? Do they have lots of floral decorations all around them, like the Book of Kells almost? Or is it just like a blank piece of parchment with writing on it? So I've not seen any that are as elaborate as the Book of Kells. Ach, the Book of Kells has so much gold. It's all show and bling. Um, however, there's stunning lettering and kind of semi-illustrated initials in many of the Irish mythological cycle books. They are genuinely stunning manuscripts. Um, And would it have been monks that were writing these, that they were putting these on parchment? Yes, Christian scribes. So they would be writing, obviously, the Christian faith, but also preserving the culture of the people that they were converting through recording this mythology. Cool. So Diarmid is sailing over from the Irish mythology, because the Gaelic language and culture originated in Ireland and travelled by sea to Scotland, and with them they brought the strength of their legends. And Diarmid is exactly the kind of demigod that you want to establish your clan. And there's plenty of tales about him, told in many different ways. Unfortunately for him, Diarmid had a bit of a traumatic childhood, and this set him up for quite a nasty enchantment in later life. You see, Diarmid was the son of Don, a god. Don is intriguing, the Irish deity of the dead, dwelling with the souls of the deceased. But because of some kind of godly quarrel and feud, he ended up being given to Angus Og to be raised. Angus Og 
is such a contrast to Don as a god. He's a god of youth and love and springtime into summer of blossoms and inspiration. If dawn was a storm, then Angus would be the rainbow that comes after it. So I think he's a great choice of stepfather. And although of the gods, Diarmid wasn't always amongst the gods. Rather, he spent his childhood playing with the son of the mortal house steward named Rock. Now, we don't know the name of this boy, although it is said that it was Rock's only son. Let's call him Pebble. The big old dad god Don decided to visit his son, but when he saw that his son was playing with the son of a mortal steward, he became incredibly angry and jealous. This jealousy stems from Don witnessing the two boys being treated equally in the household, and this makes him furious. He thinks that his son should be treated like a demigod, and that we pebble should be treated like a servant. Around the same time, a scuffle broke out in the keep when a piece of meat was thrown to some of the giant hunting dogs, and they all began to fight and howl and scrap. Now during this, the son of Rock, or Pebble, ran and hid between the knees of Don for protection, but this was the last thing he got, as Don seized his chance to let out his anger, and in one swift movement, he broke the boy's neck with the strength of his leg muscles and threw the boy's limp body under the feet of the hounds. When Rock saw his dead child's body, he howled in pain and grief and vowed to seek revenge quickly. And so he left and retrieved a druid's wand and with this, he put an enchantment on the corpse of his only son. Now whatever magic this was, it brought his son back to life. But instead of a boy, he transformed into a wild boar. A boar without any bristle or ears or a tail. And Rock put an enchantment on this boar, that it would spend all its days forever hunting Diarmid, and live only until it had killed him. For Diarmid's father, Don, had killed Rock's only son, and so Rock pledged his reanimated boar's son to vengeance to take from Don what had been taken from him. So Diarmid was under a geish, a curse put on him so he wasn't able to pierce the skin of a pig. So turning the corpse into a boar was actually quite a cunning move. But despite these various curses and enchantments upon him, Diarmid grew up to be a famous and skilled warrior in the Fianna, led by Finn. Finn is one of the greatest leaders and the Fianna was a legendary band of warriors who guarded Ireland. And Diarmid himself had gained great respect amongst them, for he had single-handedly slain thousands in battle. Along the way, he had also picked up a cheeky wee love spot on his face, another sort of geish, that would make any woman who set eyes upon it fall in love immediately with Diarmid. So... Diarmid definitely didn't want this love spot because of all the problems it would and did cause him. But in the times of the Fianna, folks were very reckless with casting spells. <laughs> so half the heroes of the Fianna were under curses and enchantments. I say bring back the days of the geish, Annie. 
You get a geish and you get a geish. You get four geishes. But the biggest love entanglement came in the form of Gronya. You see, Finn's wife dies. And Finn, as we know, is the leader of the Fianna, the warrior of all warriors, and he mourns the loss of his wife terribly. But after some time, his Fianna start trying to encourage him to get back out there on the dating scene, you know, get his oar back into the sea of courtship, get on ye oldie school tinder, and find a new wife. And with Finn being such a mighty warrior, his Fianna suggests the highest ranking, most beautiful woman in Ireland as a wife for him. And Finn agrees, and sets his sights on Gronya, the daughter of the King of Ireland. A woman of perfect shape and speech, much like myself. Asymmetry's all in right now. But instead of going to ask Gronya for her hand in marriage himself, Finn sends a few of his finest members of the Fianna in his place, Diarmid amongst them. And just like on the school playground, Finn got his pals to ask out the lassie for him. Go on, go on, gonna nip my pal. And so, Diarmid travelled on the behalf of Finn to tell the finest of all princesses that Finn wished for her hand in marriage. They asked Gronya if she would marry their strong and wise leader, she happily agreed. However, once they had returned, and she finally laid eyes on Finn, she was shocked to see that the old grey-haired warrior was much older than her own father, and she felt tricked. It's the most ancient of catfish, Annie. While the Fianna had enthusiastically described his strength in his arms and the enchantments of his spear and his knowledge of battle, they failed to mention the many, many years it took to accumulate all these things and the wild amount of hair growing out of his ears. And once she met him, Gronya didn't want to be bound and wed to this old man. And as a young independent woman with a mind of her own, she decided to make an escape plan. And Gronya knew exactly who she wanted. You see, she'd had an eye on Diarmid and his lovely little love spot. And so she decided to put another enchantment on him. One that would make him run away with her and break her promise to marry Finn. Now, Diarmid was loyal to Finn and he didn't want to run away with his bride-to-be, but also, like, you know, he was enchanted, not gonna lie, she was really fit. And he was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll kind of come with you, but also let's go. And away they went on a wild adventure and they had a marvellous time together. They frolicked in fields and they slept in caves and they killed a one-hand giant to eat his magic berries. And in general, they gallivanted around, but always making sure to evade the wrath of Finn. And from what they'd been hearing, this wrath was mighty, and the two of them were terrified. However, over time, eventually Diarmid's stepfather, Angus Og, our empathetic god of love, decided it was time to negotiate a truce between Finn and Diarmid. And finally, Diarmid was welcomed back. Once they had settled in, their lives were as peaceful as the lives of the Fianna ever really were. Together in kinship, they explore the worlds between the Earth and the legendary realms, brothers in arms and friends again. Diarmid and Finn are happy as two lambs in a grassy wildflower meadow. That is until one day, when Finn invites Diarmid on a boar hunt. Now, forgetting his various curses at this point, they're just spilling out of his pockets, Diarmid can't resist the thought of a lovely BLT. 
and so he decides to come along and hunt the boar. Now he must have known on some level that he couldn't pierce the flesh of a pig, which I'll admit does make eating that BLT seem a bit awkward, but maybe he'd found a way around it at this point. Who, who needs chewing? Now once they'd set off, Finn warns Diomed that the boar the Fianna are hunting with their dogs is the very legendary boar that can take Diarmid to his death. But Diarmid perseveres and goes on a wild boar hunt. And so, after days of tracking this beast on the limestone top glacier-formed mountain spectacular that is Ben Bulbin, Diarmid sets eyes on a memory from long ago. The bristleless, earless, tailless, rather potato-like boar which has grown humongous over the years. It's no longer a pebble, it's a mountain itself. Uh. It's a terrifying vision of snout and narrowed wee boar eyes under heavy boar eyelashes and big bulging muscly boar legs. You know what I mean, everyone's seen them. <laughs> Everyone, including Diarmid. And their eyes locked. The boar charged straight for him. Diarmid threw his magical lethal spear at the boar but it swerved and missed its target, and so he drew his legendary sword to slaughter the boar. But shockingly, as soon as he struck down into the flesh of it, Diarmid's sword split in two, and the boar savagely attacked him with his long, razor-sharp tusks, and Diarmid, being caught off guard and unprotected, was gorged until his guts fell from his belly to his feet. In the pain and agony, Diarmid used the hilt, the handle of his sword, to bash the boar on its head, and the boar fell then and there, in death with Diarmid. Well, almost death. You see, Diarmid had one last hope of life, for his leader and friend Finn also had a geish, an enchantment, and this one was on his hands, and it would mean that anyone who drank water cupped in his hands would be healed of their wounds or sicknesses, which could be seen as quite handy if your guts are quite literally your garters. Oh, However, Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> However, despite knowing this, Finn took this opportunity to mock his friend just a little bit. Once so beautiful and irresistible to women, and now look at you, mate. You're a big mess with your insides pulled out. You've been defeated by this weird-looking potato boar thing. <laughs> But once the laddish joking was done and he did realise that the situation was fairly serious, empathy tugged at Finn and he headed down the mountain to collect water from a well in order to heal his friend. But as he was halfway back to his injured pal, he remembered the anger and embarrassment and betrayal of Diarmid running away with Gronya, And so in that moment, he let the water run through his fingers. When he returned to Diarmid empty-handed, Diarmid sobbed and pleaded, wailed about how sorry he was. He can't help it. He's got all these love spots and he's a really great warrior. And he's got all these random geisha things that are just like, ah, oh, there's so many. How am I ever meant to keep tabs of them all, dude? I didn't know I couldn't kill this boar. I did know, but you know, it's I'm dying. I'm bleeding everywhere. Please help me. <laughs> and so... <laughs> He's actually quite noble in his death speech, but yes, Jenny, on you go. <laughs> and so, in this wonderful noble death speech, he managed to convince Finn to return to the well. And he retrieved another handful of water. 
But again, just when he was a few paces from Deermid, his feelings of anger and rage bubbled up and resurfaced once more, and he let the water drain through his hands. This time, however, there was no noble speech or pleading. Deermid was on his last breaths, his eyelids were fluttering, and Finn, looking upon him, finally felt pity overturn all his petty anger, and so he returned to the well a third time and retrieved a handful of water, the life of his companion literally in his hands. But just as he arrived back at Deermid's body, the last breath of life left the warrior, and no amount of healing water would be able to bring him back from the dead. Jenny so this is really a story about toxic masculinity (laughs) I feel that when you get magically healing hands you should have to take the Hippocratic Oath just not to tease people who are dying (laughs) with enchanted healing water oh no everyone is brimming with enchantments back then it'd just be a nightmare for regulation if you're trying to say oh you can't do that you can't do that you'd never get anywhere with it (sighs) but the person I like most in this entire thing is Gronya. She's just deciding that she's like, nah, I'm not going to marry this old man who's tricked me. I want the young guy with the beauty spot. (laughs) (laughs) Though this is the most famous story of Diarmid, there's so many more where he can actually be the hero that he is. I'm aware that in this story, he's not actually that heroic. He just kind of runs away with his friend's fiancé. But Diarmid is one of the hero figures associated with the origins of Clan Campbell. And what's really important about these figures is that they tie the Highland clan culture back to its roots in Ireland. The Gaelic, the legends, and so much of the culture originated in Ireland. And this connection is celebrated through the clan chiefs and continuing the traditional lore. One of the most significant positions in a clan is the bard. The person who remembers and recites the genealogy of the family, the history of the clan, and the mythology of the culture. And the clan lands all are tied into this oral tradition. I think, like you said earlier, it's about belonging. Different aspects of clan culture gives a sense of belonging to a place, belonging to the territory. Whether or not anyone believes the clan was founded from an ancient Irish demigod, it doesn't really matter at all. What matters to me, Annie? (laughs) (laughs) It's saying, This ancient culture is shared by the clan. This language and the stories of it live through the people. And it's a massive part of what makes the clan a kinship. For me, Duchess is the ultimate bond of the clan. Because there are thousands of stories, both true history and legends like we've just had that show the real power of the clans, the connection between the culture and the land, the people and the environment, the language, the legends and their legacy. I think that for a lot of people with Scottish ancestry and even an affinity for Scotland, this inheritance feels crucial 
So many people visit Scotland to be close to the land. And what makes Highland land so exciting and so emotive is the depth of Gaelic culture, tradition, custom that is bound to it. This has been such a fun episode to look at, both Duchess and Diarmid. I feel like this episode has been a plate of mince and tatties. It's very wholesome. It's been a really surprising one for me. Well, it isn't the title. Giant potato boar is not. So I know it caught us all by surprise. (laughs) I think we found some really great stories that we weren't able to put in this episode. Yes, I think we'll keep exploring Duchess in episodes to come in different aspects of clan and Gaelic culture. And I'm certain that it's going to be popping up again, but we just wanted to give you a really fun introduction to it here. And what a fun introduction it was. A huge thank you to all our patrons on Patreon. Uh, We actually set up our Patreon almost exactly a year ago. And what a year it's been on there. From haunted cats to rewilding and the wolf. There's loads of great bonus content up there. And there's almost a hundred of you now. How amazing is that? A hundred people are helping support us as we make this little podcast. We've got our own little clan here, Jenny. We do. Which one of us is the chief, Annie? Hmm? Are we going to fight a boar over it? It's okay, I'll be the bard. I'm cool with that. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. If joining our Patreon is something that you've been thinking about for a while but not quite got round to it, why not let this be the, the push that gets you over there to subscribe? You could be our 100th patron. Annie, can we, se- can we send our 100th patron something? Can we send them stickers? I feel awkward about stickers because their stickiness makes me uneasy, but maybe we could do postcards? Postcards, stickers. Maybe this is a push we need to start making merch. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, stickers slash postcards of haunted cats coming your way if you're one of our patrons uh, once we hit that sweet 100. Uh, And without further ado, welcome to our two newest members of the Patreon kin, Harrison K and Genesis K. Falce is fervin. A warm welcome. Don't worry if you aren't able to support us on Patreon. That's absolutely no problem at all. We are just happy that you're listening along. Uh, If you do want to support us in a different way, you can help us out by following us on social medias, sharing us in your stories or your feeds, or leave us a a lovely little five-star rating. I've learned recently that I've actually... um, I've got a very fragile ego and I can't take anything (laughs) less than a five-star rating without it making me feel like a complete failure as a person. Um, Annie loves to send me all the four and a half star reviews being like, how dare they? (laughs) Slangeva. Slangeva. Pop a kilt on that plague, Jenny, and give it a set of bagpipes and it'll get its own time-travelling romance. (laughs) Yeah, they'll call it the kiss of black death. (laughs) Boob, onic plague. (laughs) Get that rat outlander of here. (laughs) Brave too, the plague years. (laughs) 
an uncreative joke, Danny. It all boils down to this. <laughs> Plague heart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they may take our lives, wives, but they may take our lives, but they'll never take our personal hygiene. <laughs> Plague heart. take our they may take our lives but they'll never take our oh no they took all our lives I, they they'll take our lives but they'll never take our plague pits <laughs> they may they'll... take our lives but they'll never take our, our hollywood oh. franchise mel our... gibson oiled up we maybe shouldn't have a plague heart joke in the middle of a pandemic ah i think it's funny yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs>